Welcome to Revive Ministry Podcast. This is the My Story Recovery Series, and today we have a very special guest with us today. I kind of work with her in NAMI. Uh, she's also a facilitator for the Family Support Group, while I am, as you know, the peer-to-peer facilitator. Thank you, Betsy, and f- for being willing to be a guest today. I know it's hard to share a story, especially that involves someone so close to you. So thank you again, Betsy. Oh, thank you for having me, Robert. Every episode, I like to start off with a quote. Um, This is a quote that I've been listening to um, that kind of gravitated to me a lot. And it reads, healing may not be so much about getting better as about letting go of everything that isn't you, all the expectations, all the of the beliefs and becoming who you are. It's, you know, um, I remember my first talk, I said, um, my title was knowing and being who you truly are. And I feel that that really speaks volumes for me. Finding to change something that you may not have any control over is very hard pill to swallow. You know, just look at what we're going through right now with COVID-19, a lot of uncertainty. Today, um, a lot of times we um, start to realize how quickly and easily life can stop at a dime. You know, and while also having uncertainty in the life that you thought you had some security in, this is no different from the ones we love. Betsy, in short, what does this quote mean to you today? Mm, um, That quote is so interesting. It really resonates with me now. But prior to my daughter's illness, I'm not sure I could have related to it in the same way. from earlier experiences in my life, uh, I, I had come to understand that life isn't something we can control or manipulate to serve our desires. Um, that, you know, I really had learned that. But but my daughter's mental illness, I, that was different. That was, I would say, crushing. Um, the hurt, the exhaustion, uh, the fear of what the future would bring, they, they, that was very hard. It upended my expectations and beliefs in a fundamental way. Yeah. Uh, because, because I couldn't rely on the life skills that I had developed over the years. Um, I learned, and this I kind of formulated in the, this in my head better when I was preparing for this interview. I learned that how you deal with a loved one's mental illness has a lot to do with your own personal issues and struggles and hopes and dreams. Yeah. Uh, I began to recognize as I was going through it that I that I also was in recovery. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes the people we're most critical about are the people who reflect the most in us. And um, I'm a peer uh, and a lot of my perspective has been from the pain I felt going through it. However, however, I have lo- I've lost people very close to me, which makes me realize the concept that being a peer, I didn't like to accept. It can feel as hard or even harder to see the ones we love go through pain. Mm. I'm not saying that pain for peers isn't real or damaging, but that it is different. When mm-hmm. you love someone, be it a child, girlfriend or boyfriend, fiance, wife, husband, mother or father, the pain can be equally as devastating. Betsy, in short, 
What was one of the hardest things watching your daughter go through her recovery? Well, I'm, my answer isn't going to be just one thing, but Not, I, I'd yeah. say, but I would say the hardest thing was the feeling of helplessness I had. But along with it, the uncertainty if things would get better, which reminds me of your COVID-19 analogy, because I think those feelings are, you know, the same we have now with that. But related to that, the helplessness, the uncertainty was um, accepting that my daughter and, and we as a family were in this for the long haul. That realization requires a tremendous amount of patience. And that's, that's for me personally, that's not really a strong suit. It yeah. requires that and, and letting go of the worry. And, you know, like you, I love quotes. And so I've got a quote here. It reminded me of a quote from Leo Buscaglia, who um, was an author and motivational speaker. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not living any longer. But anyway, he said, worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow. It only saps today of its joy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had to kind of really wrap my heads around my head around that to get past this sort of hardest, the hardest things of watching my daughter go through uh, her recovery. No, it's just like, you know, the expectations we have put on ourselves and on our loved ones. You know, it's it's one of the things that, you know, when you think about, you know, I, I remember the whole motto, get it right the first time. Then, uh, leaves no room uh, for this idea of being wrong. But how many times do we learn from our successes versus our failures? And I feel like um, when you're thinking about um, when you're thinking about um, expectations, you know, um, Claudia Black was on uh, on a couple of weeks ago, and I just remember just the idea of how expectations could actually be more of a stumbling block you know a lot of times it's just being that team you know being able to realize that your value doesn't hinge on you not making a mistake or being a hundred percent because as we as i grow older i i start to realize that i can't you know especially my limitations sometimes being a peer even though i do facilitate i do a lot of leadership there's a lot of things that i still to this day struggle with and it's about being intentional. Anyway, mm. we'll get into that later. But letting go with love is a title you chose for this episode. Briefly, can you tell what was behind the reason for that title? Uh, sure. Uh, Nami's family to family course ends with a reading called Let Go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really inf- affirming and insightful about how to support our loved ones with mental illness. It's it's 10 brief bullet points. Would you mind if I read? No, go, go ahead. Okay. And I'm not sure if they have this at the end of the peer-to-peer um, class as well. As it might be familiar to some folks. But it says, to let go does not mean to stop caring. It means I can't do it for someone else. To let go is not to cut myself off. It's the realization I can't control another. To let go is to allow someone to learn from natural consequences. To let go is to recognize when the outcome is not in my hands. To let go is not to care for, but to care about. To let go is not to fix, but to be supportive. To let go is not to judge, but to allow another to be a human being. 
To let go is not to expect miracles, but to take each day as it comes and cherish myself in it. To let go is not to criticize or regulate anybody, but to try to become what I dream I can be. To let go is not to regret the past, but to grow and live for the future. To let go is to fear less and love more. And so, you know, thinking about a title, I thought really what my goal is is to be able to let go in those ways with love. So that's that's how I came up with it. If you don't mind, before I, I have you um, start to share your story, there's this, um, you know, I'm doing uh, next week, I'm, uh, every Thursday I do a short segment on COVID-19 and we're on forgiveness. And I thought this one, this por- portion of an article I got on the website, uh, Psycho- Psychology Today, and it's in the it's in the episode that I recorded yesterday for next Thursday is, I'm just gonna share what it reads. It says, in my, clinic, in my clinical practice, I've treated many people who have been terribly victimized and traumatized by physical, sexual, emotional, and physical abuse. I've also treated many who have been abused by those who should have treated them the most kindly such as parents, siblings, close friends, and even clergy. Those who do well and cope best in life are those who have found some way to forgive themselves and others. They have worked hard to let go of the anger and resentment and moved on. They don't forget and they don't allow themselves to continue to be victimized. They let go of their anger and choose to forgive. Deserved or not, anything from them to forgive them it's it's interesting this this one portion because he's going through seven reasons uh guidelines to forgive and forgiveness is just a great um Mm. thing to really uh um put into your um your uh, whole wellness toolkit and you know i do not minimize like i said before the people who the loved ones surrounding the one who is who is struggling with uh, mental illness. You know, me seeing both sides of the fence, seeing the people I love who's not here today and myself struggling personally. So I do mm-hmm. understand that. Well, without oh, thanks further- Thanks for sharing that. that. That was really interesting to hear. Well, without further delay, Betsy, can you share with us today your story of recovery, letting go with love? Uh, yeah. Um, I- you know, I would I would preface it by saying that my my story of recovery only has meaning for me as it relates to my daughter's recovery. I think yes. so. So I I want to tell you a little bit about her journey, brief briefly. Um, as a teenager, she began to use alcohol and drugs, marijuana primarily, mm-hmm. uh, probably as a way to cope with anxiety and fit in with her peers. Um, you know, of course, this wasn't unusual for a team to do, but, but my daughter was a student athlete and we were a close knit family. So this behavior was, I think, uh, for her dad and me, she's an only child. It was particularly perplexing and worrisome. Yeah. Um, a, a diagnosis with ADHD as a senior, when she was a senior in high school came, came as a surprise completely. Um, but it turns out that was just the beginning. That diagnosis was followed over a period of many years by depression, anorexia, substance abuse, uh, and finally bipolar disorder. By that time, my daughter's filters, I would say, had been 
so damaged that many of her choices and behaviors were a source of constant concern for me. Even though she'd been able to graduate from college and hold down jobs, after two hospitalizations and successfully completing an intensive outpatient program, she then she was on her road to recovery. And then she's very committed to her recovery five years in, which is where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I stumbled upon a quote from another quote, I hope you don't mind, from <laughs> no. someone named Brene Brown, who's an author and a research professor in social work. She said, uh, staying vulnerable is a risk we have to take if we want to experience connection. Mm. And this, really, I, this, I'm bringing this up because it has to do with my recovery. Mm. Um, my recovery, I'd say, has been a lesson in vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I looked up vulnerable in the dictionary and it said it's to be, quote, capable of being physically or emotionally wounded, end mm. quote. I'd say, mental illness wounds the loved one as well as the caregiver and as i healed i learned to accept my daughter's illness and develop develop better ways to support her but i also embraced my own sense of woundedness and tried to move it in a positive direction yeah you know it's interesting because um um when you when you when you're talking about, um, um, you know, the, the story isn't different. You know, your daughter is in recovery, but you began to see it differently. You know, a lot of people, even myself, when I struggled with some of the trauma I dealt with and was dealing with, you have it so in a bubble, so focused on that event, that individual. But it's this idea, you know, I, I saw this one um, seminar is about reframing those events, you know, because a lot of times you just focus in on that, but there's a lot more context you know, when it comes to that. And there's a lot of things that you don't see that are good. You know, right now with the current situation, it this forces us to slow down and really see what is important. You know, um, mm-hmm. back in the day, you know, the idea was, you know, you, you you get a good job and you, you do what's right the first time. And mm-hmm. uh, that was it. And then you just, but being vulnerable, I like how you say that because um, it's just really, um, it's really uh, allows you to grow even closer to that individual because willingness and willing to be wrong is a really crazy concept, but I feel even as a leader in my church or even in my groups, if anywhere you need to be, if anywhere you could be wrong is those places, it has to be a safe place. Then what's mm-hmm. the point? You know, the thing is the idea of creating safe places, especially in your home um, and with your closest loved ones is very important because at the end of the day, um, are we going to really, uh, are we really going to be concerned about whatever titles or jobs or anything at the end of the day? I'm talking about, I've visited some people who were maybe a week left to live, you know what I mean? And they never talked about the jobs or the titles or anything like that. Nothing. They talked about the people that they love. That's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So it made me realize being only 38, you know, 
and seeing how backwards it was. You know, right now, being vulnerable has been my biggest strength. And it sounds weird to say that because when I was in recovery, when I was reckless, similar to your daughter, I was drinking Uh alcohol. I was doing all this stuff, you know, because I was trying to numb as much as I can. I didn't want to feel feelings. And at the same time, my biggest strength was being vulnerable. My biggest strength was feeling feelings again. So, Mm. um, Mm. so... So anyway, um, Betsy, uh, in group, I'm a f- I facilitate, and so do you. One question I keep um, asking, especially when I see a peer or even myself struggling personally, um, this this question that I found online, it says, "What do you think you've lost, or what did you not get that you expected or desired to have?" You know, this question, you can peel it as deep as you want, but at the end of the day, a lot of time. I find that I lost them. Maybe a lost value. A lot of times with peers, especially myself, um, my own perspective is that we lose value for ourselves. Because I remember I was talking to Claudia in the podcast. You know, she was saying, you know, she wanted to ask her son every day how he was doing. I remember I had the thick of it. I couldn't say I was doing better. And it was a struggle because I felt like all I was giving was bad news. And I mean and it, it was it, it's hard to your own value you know me being a college graduate too and then me in a unable to work you know and everyone looking at me at what i can't do what i can't do and sometimes you know i i i really empathize for my peers in my uh, nami group because it's not only the struggle of their own symptoms that they have to do but also breaking free and being able to be vulnerable be able to be wrong you know, and um, it's just it's just one of those things. So how do you, this question, I know I went off, but what do you think you lost or what did you not get that you expected or desired to have? How do you think you would answer this question today versus when your daughter first started the journey through recovery? Well, let me, let me first just answer it and then I'll say how I would, you know, do it today or whatever. I'd, yeah. say, I'd say looking back, um, as my daughter's illness took hold, and you know, and she became more symptomatic. I grieved the loss of our relationship. I I, I knew that mother-daughter relationships can be difficult, yeah. uh, partic- particularly during a daughter's uh, teen years and into young adulthood. But this was something different. I couldn't make sense of why she did the things she did and where her resents resentments came from. She yeah. it's she seemed filled with with. Um, not all the time, but it, w- it would flare up, but anger and resentment. I expected that family and friends could provide the support I needed. So this is to the, you know, what did you not get that you expected? I expected that, but unfortunately, my husband and I communicate well, and we, we typically were on the same wavelength. So we supported each other in a very constructive way. But it was hard for many family and friends, and although there were notable exceptions, it was hard for them to understand. It took me a while, but I came to the realization that they viewed our daughter's behavior and illness through the lens of their own issues and biases. Yeah. And I I needed to recognize that so that I could sift out the stuff that was going to be helpful and just disregard the things that they said that that were hurtful 
or without their even meaning for them to be hurtful. Um, so, you know, your, your um, corollary, whatever question to this about how would you answer the question today versus when your daughter first started her journey through, through recovery. Um, I mean, we're five years into my daughter's recovery now, and I feel extremely blessed to have a wonderful relationship with her. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate each moment. And mm -hmm. part of my appreciation is because I know how things might have turned out very differently. I, yeah. see, I see that with the loved ones of other people. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I have confidence now that if there's speed bumps on our, you know, this road ahead, or, or even something more serious than a speed bump, that she and we as a family can weather them. I, I'd say it's been a remarkable turnaround and I'm so proud of my daughter, of who she is and and all that she's accomplished. It's, uh, you know, I just love, there's two points I wanna um, emphasize is gratitude. You know, you just spoke mm -hmm. volumes. Like, gratitude is so huge in the idea of healing. I think right now, a lot of people are realizing that and well, hopefully um, is that, you know, there's always gonna be people worse off than you. And there's mm -hmm. always gonna be people better off in the scheme of but at the same time it makes you humble uh if you if you look at it at the right angle you realize you you're thankful for what you got you know mm -hmm. i am thankful to this day for all those people who arguably listened to me you know there were times when i first started revive ministries and i would say a very small percentage went to my my events from my church and for me i was yeah, I was disappointed, but at the same time, I, I realized something that um, I wasn't doing it for them, you know? I was doing it for anyone. Like, if one person showed up to my events, that was fine. And then when I started the podcast, it prepared me for that because the thing is, I could see myself doing this on 85, at least. I love, mm -hmm. I love sharing stories. I love, because everyone has a different story to tell. That's the <laughs> point. You know, you talked about how your family members or friends might have seen your daughter at a different angle. One thing that I've also realized is that someone's bad news is someone's good news. There was this illustration I shared in another podcast. I think a pa uh, pastor shared it. He's like, he was in church. Someone was in the front saying, my mom has been, uh, is it, has been cleared of cancer. Like basically, and everyone's saying, amen. And another woman runs out crying. He goes out, he goes out there, he's like, what's wrong? He's like, my mom was struggling with cancer and he prayed three months ago. She's not, she passed away. Uh, everything's, everything's so complex. And as a leader in church and dealing with a lot of people, you may have good news, but it's not good news for other people. And that's how complicated it is. And like, like you said, it's like you, someone seeing maybe someone really struggling and maybe they just get busy in their work. It's different between being busy and being productive, you know, productive, I kind of, you, you balance work and then your home life, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if a lot of people, I could, I I dare to guess that people who, who work, 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 and they provide well for their family, and then let's say they lost their job or their jobs are slow, their home right now because it's COVID-19, it might be a big struggle to slow down, to slow down and to, to be there when they really, they were just kind of hiding from a lot of things. Being busy is a good band-aid at one point of your journey of recovery, but it is not 
sustainable, what I found. You have to find some sort of meaning and purpose. And I feel that that's very important because in um, the, the uh, uh, Victor Frankel, you know that guy from the, uh -huh. that author, I'm paraphrasing, but he does say, um, because he was in Auschwitz and I guess he was recanting the experience and he says something to this effect that one, when you know the why in life, the how gets bearable, easier. Because mm -hmm. if you don't know the why, you know, it's easy from day to day. If you're, if you're, if you, if your value hinges on just one person or one job, it's not sustainable. It has to be something, you know, obviously I'm a person of faith and this is not a proselytizing podcast. You know, what I try to inspire is hope, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, I think everyone's story is, is different and is value. And uh, I do like the idea of gratitude and the idea of also understanding the context that other people may have and how they view your daughter or how they view me. And it's one of the struggles that people don't really talk about. The stigma, a lot of times people just equate it to people who are outside, but really who is outside? Who is our neighbor right now? It's, it's everyone. So. <laughs> Anyway, um, I have another question. It's 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 kind of a follow-up question. Um, how has your view on mental health as a whole changed from the beginning on your of your daughter's journey versus now? Um, well, it went from being something I knew about on an intellectual level to yeah. something I understood on a much deeper level, which doesn't mean that mental health and mental illness hadn't touched my family before. Yeah. It certainly had the, the, the broader family. Um, but with my daughter's illness, I had to, conf the difference with my daughter's illness, I had to confront who I was as a parent mm -hmm. and who I was as a person on an emotional level. Um, I, you know, I know now that recovery brings healing and reconciliation. Um, but that, you know, that's, I'm looking back now, you know, yeah. hindsight lets me see that. But, yeah. Um, it's not as easy when you're in the yeah. thick of a crisis too, because you just, you know, there's that uncertainty about where it's all going to lead. Um, so. Yeah, it's just the idea, you know, we brought this up before, gratitude. You know, what's the opposite of gratitude? It's entitlement. Mm. Um, and then you have forgiveness and what's the opposite of that is resentment um one of them like gratitude if you're grateful for what you have you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna live a more um and it has been proven that um a huge constant chronic stress whatever it is even if you don't notice it it will affect you physically and that's why um it's important to be mindful of that you know the idea of just being entitled like always being disappointed and feeling you're entitled you know i've spoken to a, a wide variety of people on my podcast people who were in their church in the church all their life but their story is important too to like people like angel and um robert gallant who have very hard life you know they had a hard mm -hmm. beginning but mm -hmm. you see the value in how they've grown you know everyone's story is important so when I see gratitude versus entitlement, gratitude has more value to me because it, it provides room to heal. If it's always like you're always waiting to get something and not give, 
you're gonna be you're gonna be disappointed and at the same time if you're not able to forgive you're always resentful you're gonna have that animosity and that the stress level whether you're right or not being a leader I found that 99% of the time when it comes to interpersonal relationships being right has nothing to do with it it's about continuing the dialogue and even going even further when I talk about with um, with some people who have lost people who wanted to kill themselves or um, uh-huh. you know, the, be- the best scenario you can have is that you have a safe place in store and that they're willing to get the help. That's it. Willingness is always shut down like it's so flimsy, but sometimes unfortunately with mental health and with people who are in recovery, willingness is the best you could ask for. You know, willingness to get the help, willingness to go through those little steps in the beginning. And I remember going through those little steps. You know, um, with the family support group and facilitating that, there are so many um, folks who have loved them with mental illness and they just would love to have their, um, you know, the, well, the loved one who has the mental illness be willing to go seek help and to, to yeah. try because yeah. a lot of them um their loved one either because of a symptom of the illness doesn't accept yeah. or recognize they have an illness and then there are others who just for whatever reason they they understand they have a mental illness but they don't want to deal with the side effects or they 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 just can't yeah. go there and and so the willingness is yeah, I agree. That's fundamental, you know. It's huge, and like being like obviously I, I, in church as a leader, um, being intentional is huge. You know, a lot of times you see in churches someone gets in the hospital. What I a lot of times I see, unfortunately, the first two weeks everyone's there for that person. What happens after those two weeks? Nothing. Now, for me, um, not all the time, but like following up with people is huge. And people always forget about that. You know, a lot of times, even with this COVID-19, people say social distancing. And I, I don't like the word social in that because it kind of reflects that we don't connect. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's really physically distancing. Now, being careful, being mindful of those around us. But social has nothing to do with it. We could still, with the, with the level of technology we have to connect, Right, right now is the best time to connect with those people you don't have time usually to do to do so because life is busy we get caught up we are in our own little bubbles you know and we kind of kind of remember that and it's it's not it's not um it's not anyone's fault about that but i just know from my story my own perspective i don't speak though that the biggest healing for me was really realizing that um, my recovery and i'm just speaking for myself and i is really just my recovery was serving my healing was helping people that was it um people ask why i do this you know people might be like why do you push so many episodes why do you do so much you know what it helps me helps me remind me and be grateful for where i'm at you know um now shifting gears if someone is listening to your story today has a very similar story, but it's just in the beginning of the road of recovery with their loved one. What would you say to them? What would you, like anything, you know, obviously everyone's context, everyone's situation is different, but what would you say to them today? Well, you know, I, uh, 
this question when I uh, first read it uh, or heard heard it from you. Um, you know, there are a lot of directions I could take it, but I think in terms of bullet points, I'm kind of a, you know, um, (laughs) the kind of person who likes to have a to-do list and check it off kind of thing. Um, and so I, you know, that's what I did. I, I, have got here like six bullet points that I would recommend. (laughs) They're brief. They're brief. The first one is celebrate the steps forward, but expect setbacks. Yeah. It's not just, you know, okay, you've started your recovery. It's just, you know, we're going to just go on down that highway with no off ramps. It's not like that. Uh, The second is keep the lines of communication open with your loved one. Uh, Early in the earlier days, actually before my daughter was in recovery, um, a therapist said to uh, my husband and me, um, you know, whatever you do keep the lines of communication open as as much as you can sometimes loved ones aren't it's it's you know they won't let you in that way but um that's that's what we did and it really worked to our benefit um okay the the third thing i'd say is learn as much as you can about mental illness and supporting a loved one with mental illness um Document your loved one's behavior and treatment, you know, the doctors, the meds, the therapy. Um, One of the, you know, we talk about uh, documenting um, and it's, you know, so we have it to refer to. um, Mm -hmm. But it's it's also helpful because you can kind you kind of look hopefully at the progress that's been made over years you know there's you know a couple of steps forward then maybe three steps backward and then one step forward you you kind of see the patterns you 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 see if nothing else you see that you've you know you've survived to that point um the the couple more um is seek support through nami uh therapy and other outlets and Finally, and this is echoing something I I heard Claudia say in her talk, um, take care of yourself. Uh, Remember you have a life outside of your loved one's mental illness. And if you don't develop, you know, figure out a way to have that life outside of it, it, because it'll help you cope more effectively. um, Yeah, yeah. Just in general, but also with your loved one. So those are the things that I would, that's the advice I would give. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, uh, I think it was the third one. What was the third one? Was that the... Learn as much as you can was that one. Document was the fourth one. Oh, uh, yeah. The document. It's very important. To, I like what you said because really what you're doing is is pulling back. Because sometimes I know, I could, uh, I could tell from my own parents and you get so close to it can't see outside it's so you're not able to see the big picture you know i mean what has happened and it does it is mindful especially people like i get uh, myself and i assume you that context helps you know when you know kind of the story of what like this this is what happened this is what was going on and this you know you kind of kind of have an idea and a ability to understand you know one of the things that um I do find very important to state is there's a difference how you respond in a crisis moment than the day-to-day and that's basically what I was emphasizing with uh, Claudia like if you constantly 
Like today is a lot of fear. And one of the, basic, the best illustrations I can give listeners right now is if you're at a level of fear and you're just watching the news all day long and you, 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 it makes you lose sleep and you're going to sleep at three or four, you're going to be the most informed sick person. I'll tell you that much real quick. But the, yeah. thing, the, the, the other thing is this, um, um, you know, um, when it comes to uh, um, um, balancing that out and understanding that, you know, like the last one, you know, you have to take care of yourself, you know, understand that um, you can effectively take care of them if you're not taking care of yourself. And the idea of like knowing things is one thing, but also how you respond when someone's about needs to get going to the hospital is very different. Like if I broke my bone right now, like my leg was broken, would you talk to me about how I felt about my bone? Or would you just take me to the hospital? That's very different. But if your response every day was like that situation, day to day, it would wear on your relationship with that individual. Uh-huh. You know, the, at the same time, you know, the, the uncertainty and the, the idea that all of us, even family members, everyone involved in the recovery process has, it's hard to swallow this idea that there's a lot of uncertainty. In it. You know, and the idea of being grateful gives you room to heal. The idea of putting context to it and this team environment, this safe place model is very huge, I feel, in supporting and a healing environment for those who are recovering like myself. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think, I think it's sort of, it's there's a balancing act for, a balance, yeah. for parents and or well, because I am a parent dealing with this, but it would be true for other people who have other roles in relation to their loved one. But there's it's there's a temptation to I think um, to try too hard yeah. to try too hard to help and to guide. And so I would say, just like my daughter, I had to learn about setting boundaries. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that sort of feeds back into the letting go idea, but yes. doing so with love. So. Anyway, um, last question. And finally, the question Revive Mercy Podcast is trying to answer as a community of people around the world, why should we care? I know it's for me like um when i think of this i just think of i think of the names of the people who are not here i think of um of all the things but i'm i'm asking you especially of what we've been talking about throughout this episode what what would you tell someone um why should we care if they asked you that and um mm -hmm. um just go ahead um okay yeah um well we should care because it makes a difference um, and, and here's how it, it caring draws us into relationship with others. Mm -hmm. it, it breaks down barriers that are, um, you know, fueled by fear and ignorance. And most importantly, it motivates us to act and taking action can be everything from, you know, providing a listening ear to educating ourselves but but also you know taking on a role to educate others uh can also in, involve advocating for more humane treatment and services so um caring is 
kind of a multi-pronged thing that, you know, it, once you care, then you're gonna get outside of your bubble, as you might say, and, um, you know, listen and learn and act. Yeah. You know, Ravon Ministry stands on this same question is, why should we care? Because we can't afford not to. Mm-hmm. Betsy, any last thoughts you would like to share about your story before we uh, wrap up? Yeah. Um, those of us touched directly by mental illness have no choice. We, are, we must act to seek help for ourselves and or or our loved ones um but it makes that road easier when we have support um from fellow travelers you know those who are walking a similar path um as well as family you know support from family and friends and and caring professionals um i leo muscalia um said also don't spend your precious time asking, why isn't the world a better place? It will only be time wasted. The question to ask is, how can I make it better? Yes. To that, to that, there is an answer, he says. And um, that's, you know, it is important to, to give some thought to the why. I mean, that, not that that isn't important, yeah. but, but getting to the how, you, you can begin to take action so yeah. anyway that's what i would say yeah it's, it's just it's really it's understanding that you know that someone's good news is someone's bad news everyone mm-hmm. my whole thing is like people listening may um may not get it and that's okay the idea is that we continue the dialogue you know because the idea is everyone's story is different mm-hmm. thank you betsy for sharing your story with us today any resources you'd like to share that you found very useful regarding your journey through recovery with your daughter that has been help, uh, helpful? Um, well, uh, NAMI is the, I'd underline that and capitalize it, it's <laughs> the resource I have found that works for me and for, for so many other people. In fact, any other resource I might have come across pales in comparison. I could. I could not have gotten to this point without my association with NAMI. So even though I know that there are other outlets out there and, and you know, I, I, I would, I can't stress enough how much I think NAMI has, um, is able to assist folks. And, and that that's broad based. I mean, they have support groups, they have the website that has all kinds of information about, uh, mental illness and, and ways to support our loved ones. Um, we have the family to family course, the peer to peer course that um, there's, we, there's advocacy is really um, something that NAMI tries to do in terms on the legal front and on the, you know, governmental front and all it is just um, comprehensive in that way. And um, so I can't say enough good things about NAMI. Thank you, Betsy. Everything will be in the notes, those who are listening. So um, I'll be sharing that in the notes. Thank you again, Betsy, for being a guest. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I just want to share with all the listeners to remember to check out the Revive Ministry podcast on the website. 
for all new episodes at reviveministriesfl.com forward slash podcast. Every Tuesday will be an original My Story of Recovery segment, just like this one. Every Thursday will be a Robert's Corner, which will be a shorter segment with just myself. And on Sunday, we will be uploading a little longer segment of Robert's Corner with a special guest. Thank you for listening. This is goodbye from Revive Ministry Podcast. I will leave you with this quote. Our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising up every time we fail. Ralph Waldo Emerson.